0: at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started.
1: Well, it's week three of our After Series, and today's topic is a tough one. Hell. No matter what way you cut it, hell elicits a lot of emotional as well as theological responses. Hell is an idea that is fraught with tension, riddled with misunderstandings, and I hope to show you today absolutely necessary to our Christian faith. But whenever the topic of hell comes up, at least three crowds form. First, there's the hell no crowd. That is, why is hell even a thing? And before we even get into the nitty gritty of what hell might be, you need to explain to me why a loving, compassionate God judges or condemns anyone at all. I mean, isn't the God we believe in loving and forgiving and merciful and kind? Well, that hell no reaction is against the idea of hell itself. And you may well be in that category of reaction. And I want to let you know you are in good company. Next, we have the hell yes crowd. (laughs) That is the crowd who has some solid conviction about hell itself. Not only that there is a hell, but that there's a lot of people going there. And what's more, that hell isn't just a terrifying idea, but a real place where those who reject God's offer of salvation through Jesus will exist in a state of unspeakable agony and torment for eternity. And now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are yourself sickened by this idea, and as a result, long for all people to experience the forgiveness of God now so that they don't experience the wrath of God after, and you might be in that camp, and I want to let you know that you're in good company. And then, third, we have the hell what crowd. You might be willing to admit, if you're honest, the topic of hell is not something you've put a whole lot of thought into. In fact, your ideas around hell have been formed more by Gary Larson's far side than maybe theological or biblical engagement. And though anyone with a heart finds the idea of hell abhorrent, you aren't really leaning either way because you haven't really considered the question and you may be surprised to find out that you too are in good company. So wherever you come from today, you're in good company and I hope you find today helpful, even hopeful, even if it's a bit harrowing along the way might seem to be a tall order, but understanding hell biblically, properly, clearly can actually deepen your love for God. It can deepen your desire to follow Jesus and even your efforts to help other people find and follow him as well. Would you join with me as we pray today? I need prayer as we dive into this. Holy Spirit, would you lead us and guide us now? Give us responsive hearts and open minds to receive what your word says about final judgment. Grant me the wisdom I need, and all of us together. And through this, would our love for you grow ever more strong. In your name we pray. Amen. Here's how we're going to approach today. Uh, First, we're going to look at why judgment is even necessary. I think it's important that we unpack that. And then we're going to explore a little bit of what the Bible says about hell. What it is, what it's not, what that might mean. As you can imagine, there's a lot to cover And it's going to be a bit of a workout for us. It might be a little longer than normal, but I'm going to do my best to be clear today. Uh, For those of you who are um, wondering about maybe extra questions that I won't cover, we're going to host a Zoom Q&A coming up on February 28th. And I encourage you to be on our email list as a church. You can go to ericsoncovenant.ca, click on contact us and fill out that box to be on our email list Or you can email connect at ericksoncovenant.ca and we'll send you the Zoom link. But that's on February 28th. I'm going to host an online Q&A about all the questions that have come out of this series. So please be writing them down. I won't be able to answer every question in this message today, as you can well imagine. Okay, so why hell? Or why is judgment important? The first reason is because of who God is. A truly Christian understanding of hell is rooted in the good character of God. Are you surprised by that? The God of Israel revealed himself in Jesus Christ, defining himself forever by Jesus as a God of compassion, a God of grace, as well as a God of holiness and justice. Hell, or more broadly speaking, judgment, final judgment, directly expresses God's settled opposition to all that is evil in the world, all that defaces his creation, all that dehumanizes his human images, and all that desecrates his holiness. And the reason why judgment and hell are, in that sense, good, is because it tells us that God is a God of justice. He doesn't just look at evil and then just sort of shrug his shoulders and reach over and, you know, pat the pedophile in the back and say, oh, it's all right. Let's not worry about it. That's not God. God doesn't look at the wickedness of a Genghis Khan or an abusive husband and then just look the other way. God isn't ambivalent toward the abuse and genocide of indigenous peoples as though it doesn't really matter. No the God who revealed himself in scripture and through Jesus Christ finds sin abhorrent and he's absolutely committed to evil's eradication. The Bible calls that commitment, the wrath of God. Now, if we pause and think about it, we wouldn't want it any other way. We all know that a judge who overlooks evil is an evil judge. And we all know that evils and injustices and so many down through history right till today are often never set right in our time during this life. That people quite literally get away with murder, die rich and comfortable. And even if crimes are judged here in this life, we're still left with the destructive consequences wondering if that really was justice. Can you imagine a just and righteous world without judgment? Some kind of judgment? You can't. And what the biblical doctrine of hell and judgment tells us is this. God will not rest until all evil is judged and destroyed. That's how good God is. He will destroy evil. He will condemn it and eradicate it forever. God's wrath flows from his love and goodness. The second reason why judgment matters is because of who we are. God created human beings with real choice, the ability to live as full human images of God in loving relationships, or at the same time, to turn from God's ways and receive the consequences of our choices. Hell, in its simplest form, Honors the dignity of our real choices. As God is the only true source of life, we can choose to receive Him or reject Him with the attending results. As much as God desires loving relationships with us, God is not coercive. God does not force Himself on us, He does not simply run roughshod over our desires. Yes, God woos and calls and beckons and pursues. But in the end, if we resist him, we have the power to reject life itself. As C.S. Lewis wrote in The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. And if, if we ponder it a bit, we realize that we would not have it any other way. A God who simply ignores our choices has reduced us to less than human status. We were created in the likeness of God himself and our freedom to choose is also our freedom to love, to worship, to to act and change and serve, to authentically be all that God has created us to be. Without that choice, we would not be human. And were God to strip that from us, he would not be the God that he revealed himself to be in Jesus Christ. So those are two solid rationales for final judgment. You might want to explore that further, and I strongly encourage it. Okay, so if judgment is necessary, then what does that judgment look like? What does the Bible say about hell, or more broadly speaking, about what comes after for those who do refuse God's life through Jesus? In its simplest terms, hell represents final destruction, the complete eradication of all evil forever. All through the Bible, from the earliest warning that God gave, if you eat of this tree, you will most certainly die. And then continuing forward, we hear this, God is life. And those who reject the only source of life through rebellion, through mistrust, through abuse, through evil, they cut themselves off from life itself and therefore die. I could take you through passage after passage after passage and show you how the Bible speaks with absolute clarity about the fate of the wicked. In short, the Bible speaks of it as total Annihilation. From Psalm 1, just after contrasting the flourishing life of the godly and those who follow God's ways, we hear this. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Over in Th- Psalm 37, the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they, they will be consumed. They will go up in smoke. And that's not just in the Old Testament. It's all over there. Listen to this from the New Testament. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. When you boil it all down, You can't do better than Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The truth is, while the word hell gets a lot of press and conjures up a lot of images, it's only one way that the Bible talks about the fate of the wicked or the end of all who reject God's life. When you pull together all the Bibles teaching about the wicked and the fate and all that, the array of terms is dizzying, actually. The wicked will vanish. They'll be cut off, disappear. They'll be destroyed. They will be no more. They'll be blown away. They'll be up in smoke. They'll collapse. They'll be gone. They'll perish. They will die. Most of the time, these terms are used. The word hell isn't. And that's important to note. Because hell is really just one way of talking about a much larger reality. What comes after for those who reject God now? And because hell, as a concept, has been filled up with so many cultural connotations and odd ideas that aren't actually related to the Bible at all, it's been hard to even talk about it properly. Many of our modern conceptions about hell are more formed by medieval writers, such as Milton, and Dante, rather than biblical ones such as John or Paul. And like I said earlier, uh, side comics and, and jokes have also formed us. <clears throat> the idea that hell has certain sights and sounds and smells with its instruments and its levels and it's ruled over by Satan himself with hopeless prisoners chained in ceaseless torment forever, these aren't from the Bible at all. And yet they've had a profound effect on our consciousness. When you pull together all of what the Bible has to say about final judgment as a whole, whether it's talking about hell or otherwise, the Bible is very clear. Final judgment on evil results in complete and total destruction. The wages of sin really are death. Some of you are catching your breath right now, and so I want to just pause for a moment. Hell and judgment are hard, hard topics and I want to remind us right here in the midst of this all to always be looking to Jesus because he is the good news in this whole story that Jesus took our death. He took our destruction. He's given us new life and total forgiveness, and we need have no fear at all. Jesus is here. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can trust that judgment has already been served by Jesus on the cross, And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, today can be your day. All you have to do is simply place your trust in Jesus, what he did for you on the cross, and let the Holy Spirit wash your sins away and fill you with his new life. Jesus did it for us. And So take heart. We'll come back to this, but if you're feeling anxiety right now, breathe, look to Jesus, and celebrate the fact that while we're talking about final judgment— because of Jesus, we have no fear of it. Let's keep going. At the beginning of the series, I highlighted four key truths. These influence everything we're talking about. All of life is a gift from God. Our bodies matter. Sin stings, but resurrection renews. Those form the backdrop of how we see. And as you can, as you can tell, when, when, when we're talking about hell and judgment, that first truth that all of life is a gift from God, and the connection to that, we're not immortal in and of ourselves. Only, we only live because of the gift of God to us now and forever. That is essential. The scriptures teach us that God only is immortal. God only is eternal. Nothing else is. And our eternal God is the source of all this life, all this life that flows from him to us, to his creation. Now we, as created images, we are only alive because of him. We're not immortal. We're, we are contingent beings. Uh, Yes, I believe we were created to live forever with God, but only as we're connected to him as the source of our life. So when humans, when God told humans that rejecting him would lead to their death, he wasn't joking. He wasn't being petty. He wasn't being weird and controlling and fudging the facts. He was telling them the truth. If you leave me, you'll die. I am the source of your life. If you cut yourself off from God, You cut yourself off from life. And the Bible from start to finish reemphasizes that truth over and over again. Why am I emphasizing this now? Because it has been commonly believed by both those who have rejected the idea of hell and those who believe it and accept it. It has been commonly believed, contrary to the teaching of Scripture, that the Bible teaches that human beings who have rejected God and are then judged and go to hell, will somehow live on for eternity in a state of agonizing torment, existing in a sort of diabolical half-life where they're kept alive by God so that they can be continually tortured as a punishment for their sins. Have you heard this? It's a horrible idea. And my friends, it's not biblical. The Bible does not teach eternal conscious torment, as it's often called. The Bible does not reveal a God who gets glory from inflicting continual pain and suffering upon his enemies for eternity. God's good future does not include an eternal torture chamber somewhere where God's enemies continue to endure unspeakable pain and torment. The Bible does not teach that. What the Bible teaches is this. God, in his mercy and grace, offered rebellious humanity a way back to life. A way back after they had severed their life connection. The Bible teaches that God, in his mercy and grace, is ready. And willing to forgive and cleanse us from all sin. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish. But have everlasting life. God who is rich in mercy sent Jesus himself. To reveal the kingdom of God to us. To teach us what his kingdom was like. Including love for our worst enemies. Jesus, who came to take our place, to cover our shame, he went to the cross as the complete, once and for all sacrifice for sin, hanging on that cross, and even as he hung, offering forgiveness to his killers. And then rising again, victorious over death. But that offer of life must be received. That's the message of the gospel. Must be received in faith. This is not something that is forced. Those who don't want it, don't get it. And the result of refusing that life is death, such that a person ceases to exist for eternity. When you tell someone that they have to eat to live, you're not being petty. If they refuse to eat, malnutrition and eventually death will be the result. It's just the same with God. Now, how can I say with such confidence that the Bible teaches final judgment as complete eradication? not as some sort of eternal conscious torment. Well, to fully explore that would take far more time and involve far more detail than we have today. That's obvious. And if this concerns you, if you're really wrestling right now with what I'm saying, you need to take the responsibility for yourself to explore this further. And I recommend to you the definitive book written on the subject by Edward Fudge called The Fire That Consumes a biblical and historical study of the doctrine of final punishment. And by the way, this isn't just a view that a few fringe folks believe. Many, many, many solid evangelical biblical scholars hold to this view. But for our purposes today, I'm going to point you, point you in four directions. Four directions to support what I'm saying about the Bible's teaching on final judgment as total eradication. The first direction... I've already mentioned, and that is the many, many passages of scripture that clearly state the fate of the wicked is death. There's no hint of an enduring life of sorts where people are punished in an ongoing way. And for those of you who thought the Bible does teach that, I urge you to look again at the many judgment passages, not just the hell passages, and see what the Bible is actually saying you will discover and perhaps be surprised by it that the very passages that have been used to support the idea of an ongoing conscious torment actually say nothing of the kind. They simply state in a whole variety of ways that the wicked die and are gone. But, and this is the second direction I want to point you in, there are a few passages that have been used to argue for this ongoing conscious torment and so I'm going to take you to one of them, Matthew 25. Jesus in Matthew 25 tells a series of parables. One of the famous parables he tells there is the dividing up of the sheep and the goats. The sheep, as it turns out, are rewarded because though they did not know it, they had shown love and care for God while caring for the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, the prisoner. And then the goats are judged for their lack of care though they didn't know it was a, an affront to God. They didn't realize it was God either. Lord, they said, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And how does the king respond? Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And then listen to these words. This is the relevant part and how it ends. Then they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous... To eternal life. This is one of the few passages that could suggest that the punishment of the wicked continues to go on as though it's a punishment that goes on in an everlasting way. In fact, some would argue because it's contrasted with eternal life, isn't that obvious? It's the opposite. Well, no, not actually. First of all, the overwhelming voice of scripture already has given us this the, the, the clear statement that the wicked end in total annihilation and death. We have to account for all of that. But then in this kind of passage, and there are a few of these, what we're seeing is not an argument against total destruction, but another way of saying the very same thing. Rather than a punishment that continues, it's a punishment with everlasting or eternal effects. That what happens is judgment falls, they are now dead, they are gone, and they are never to return. It's irreversible. The judgment rendered is final, and in that sense, lasts forever. When you contrast that with eternal life, it gets even clearer. What is the opposite of eternal life? It's death that lasts forever. It's exactly what death means. The third direction is Matthew 10, 28. Let me read it. Jesus is telling his disciples not to be afraid of persecution and death. And then he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I'm not going to belabor this one. Simply stated, Jesus is arguing that hell is a place where the total destruction of a person takes place place. Hell is not a place where people are kept sort of alive so they can be tortured some more. This is one more clear statement that humans are not immortal, but rather that our life, both now and after, are utterly dependent on God's gift of life to us. The fourth and final direction I'll point us in is, in, is toward the famous lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. Now, there's a ton going on in this passage and if you're less familiar with Revelation as an apocalyptic genre, that's a type of writing that utilizes the big images and a lot of stuff going on here, I don't want you to be intimidated by the imagery here. Just here it is a series of very powerful images coming mostly out of the Old Testament. And that this passage even here is set within a much larger letter, It comes towards the end and it's assuring the persecuted, martyred Christians that final judgment will come upon the evil forces that have been arrayed against them. We should always be very careful not to take images in Revelation too literally, but this is what is often used to argue for eternal conscious torment over against a final and total death. I'm going to read it and notice as I do how many of these images have formed our view of hell. Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then, Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. A few things to quickly note. God is the righteous judge of all. What he decides is right and true. That's the whole image of the white throne. The, The final judgment of the dead, they're being judged according to what they have done. It's a righteous judgment. Also, death and Hades, Hades is the Greek version of hell, they themselves are thrown into the lake of fire. This is interesting because what it's reminding us uh, is that the very reality of death and hell is itself being destroyed now. And now we come to the lake of fire, this powerful image. First, it's important to know that the lake of fire has already been mentioned a little earlier in Revelation 20, verse 10, where we read that, quote, the devil who deceived them, referring to the satanic army, was thrown in to a lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this is key because we're told here that the devil and the beast and the false prophet are tormented forever. Though in the context of Revelation, it's very important to note that the beast and the false prophet at least aren't likely actual beings but represent spiritual powers, the emperor cult. The government. So here in verse 14, then we're told that anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. But what does that mean? Those who've argued for a hell that keeps people alive, punishes them for eternity, have looked at this passage and then reached back to Revelation 20 verse 10, where it says that the beast and false prophet were tormented forever. They pull that forward and they make it apply to these people too. But that's actually not what the scripture says. In fact, it says the opposite. The apostle John, in a rare moment of helpful clarity, says exactly what the lake of fire is. Did you see it? Verse 14, the lake of fire is the second death. We get that a few times in Revelation where he makes a a direct equation. He helps us understand what the image means. The lake of fire is the second death. We're not left wondering if the lake of fire is some sort of place where people are fed just enough life to keep them alive so they can really feel the pain of the flames and the torture of God's wrath for the rest of eternity. No, that is not what's going on here. We're told quite simply that the lake of fire is the second death death. One scholar with serious credibility, Bruce Metzger, states it definitively. He said, this second death is, quote, absolute, unmitigated death. Final and complete separation from God, the source of life. The first death was the death they died on earth. And the second death is now their final one. How can we be sure of this? Well, we too can reach back into Revelation 20, justifiably this time and look at verse 6 for a helpful clue. Verse 6 says, Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Those who receive resurrection in Christ aren't subject to this second death. Those who don't are. They die and are gone forever. Well, there you go. Those are four directions I want to point you in. If you want to dig deeper, it's all there for you to do so. (laughs) There's a ton of information here. I know it. Uh, But I didn't want you to think I was just making stuff up, especially as I was bringing something today that was maybe counter to what you thought, whether you believed in hell or not. I may have brought something today that surprised you. I wanted to show that it was biblically based, even if I couldn't take you through it all, but... Here's where we land. What does the Bible teach about hell? In some ways, it's the mirror image of what the Bible teaches about life. God is the source of all life, all goodness, all freedom. Outside of him, there is no life. There is no good. But with him, there is life forever. And God is love. He's not willing that any should perish, the Bible tells us. And he's done everything possible to ensure that life can be received, that we can be risen, that we are forgiven and loved. But in the end, God will honor our choice, honor our human freedom, and judge our choices accordingly. In the end, we will either be raised with Christ, or we will be dead forever. Well, as I close today, I want to highlight three ways this matters for us. Why understanding hell, particularly hell as complete and total destruction, not as eternal conscious torment, why that matters to us. First, I believe it actually helps us follow Jesus more faithfully. It deepens our discipleship. You see, we follow Jesus who loved his enemies and taught us to do the same. We know this. Some of the hardest teaching in Scripture. But friends, if we believe that Jesus, who lived and taught and and exemplified enemy love, without exception, even at the cross, if we believe that that Jesus will actually, eventually, turn on his own enemies, and for all eternity, keep them alive so that they can endure unspeakable torture forever, do you think that might affect our willingness to love our enemies and lay down our lives for them now? I think so. Following Jesus means that we mimic the heart and the actions of our Lord Jesus, who truly loves even those who will reject him. Though he longs to give them life, he will let them go into death. Second, a biblical understanding of hell helps us help others find him. It expands our evangelism. Very simply, we're not trying to get people to follow a God who loves them now, but is going to turn on them and torture them if they don't love him in return. That's a scary idea. Have any of you seen the meme that's been circulating? It's the meme of Jesus knocking at the door. Here it is. We'll put it up. This is what it says. Knock, knock. Who's there? It's Jesus. Let me in. Why? I have to save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. That is not good news. And it's not the good news that we have to share. It's not the good news of Jesus, but that is exactly what people think is going on when they hear about the hell that a lot of people believe. Listen, we call all people to turn away from the things that will lead them to death and come and follow Jesus, the only source of life, who loves them with an everlasting love. And while there are those who hold the idea that hell is eternal conscious torment, they would say the same thing that God loves people with an everlasting love. They're ultimately stuck with the logic of what they think hell is that anyone who rejects God's love will in fact be given. This is what they believe. Often they'll be given a resurrected body so they can be held captive in a state of perpetual torment and pain all because they refuse to love God. Yikes. That's a threat. That's not good news. That's the stuff horror films are made of. We're not calling people to surrender a God with that intention in his heart. Rather, we're calling people to a father who loves them truly, but will in the end honor their rejection, not by torturing them, but by simply letting them go. as In the words of C.S. Lewis, thy will be done. And third, I think understanding hell properly Hell is final death. It really does help us worship God more fully. God is worthy of all our praise because of who he is, because of all that he has done, for his gift of life to us in Jesus, for his unwillingness to just let us go. He's done everything possible. We praise him and we exalt him and we give him glory. Thank you, Father. But, and this is where our understanding of hell comes in, Can we truly give praise to a God who, though he would be able to extinguish fully all those who've rejected him, chooses to retain them in some sort of weird half-life of torment? Everything within us recoils at this idea. And we aren't that good. We aren't that merciful. Not really. And we think that's a bad idea. The truth is we worship a God who's more good than we are, who's more merciful than we are who's more kind than we are, who's willing to go further and further than we could possibly imagine to extend mercy and grace to the worst of sinners. Can we authentically praise a God who would do these kinds of things to people with no possibility of reprieve? Friends, that God seems less holy, less good, less merciful than we are. And not simply just less than us, but less than God has already revealed himself to be in his son, Jesus Christ, the definitive revelation of the Father. Arthur Ramsey put it beautifully when he said, the importance of the confession, Jesus is Lord, is not only that Jesus is divine, but that God is Christ-like. But is a God who tortures people for eternity really Christ-like? Letting go of that image of God changes the way we worship. Understand that this God of love is a God who will do everything possible, but in the end, grant people what they want. That reminds us that we serve and worship a God who loves, who offers, who does not coerce, but is willing to sacrifice himself to do everything possible. And friends, that enables us to truly worship, to worship a Father who longs all longs for all people and all of creation to be restored to life as he always desired. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. Friends, I know you might still have lots of questions about this, but at the end, remember this. God loves us. Jesus is for us. He offers life to us each and every day. We can take it can follow him and receive all that he has.
0: Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericsoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.